This morning we're going to be discussing the eternal law of God. For those who enjoy having an outline, I've got one for you. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter number 26. We're going to read this together this morning. This will be our beginning point in our story, in our discussion. The context, as we start in Acts chapter number 26, beginning at verse 13, the context is when St. Paul, near the end of his life, is standing before in a courtroom, and he's having a hearing before two important people. One is a gentleman named Festus, who is the Roman governor of the province of Palestine. The other is Agrippa, who is the vassal king of Galilee. And in the course of Paul, this hearing that Paul is, um, is having to work his way through, he has some important things to say. And they, ultimately, there is a passage in this text that we're going to read this morning that has to do with God's law. It's not a, uh, it's, it, it is often overlooked, but in the larger context, it's important. So here in a moment, I'm going to ask you to read with me. Now, let me just say this about St. Paul as we get this start, study started. <clears throat> you may not know this, but St. Paul spent about the last five years of his life in prison. He was arrested in Jerusalem. He was taken to the provincial capital where the Roman governors held their seat, which was the city of Caesarea on the coast of Judea on the Mediterranean Sea. He was held there for about two years. He was then transported on a prison ship to Rome where he spent at least two years in, under house arrest. And finally, at some point, he was then put to death. He had a lot of adventures on the way. He wrote some of his most important epistles while he was in prison. Many of the relationships that he'd formed in the, over the many years he referred to in these epistles. And it was during this period that he had several important hearings before various governors, kings, and possibly even the emperor, although that's not recorded in Scripture. During those last five years, Paul was able to uh, show forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in doing so, he had to defend himself from various folks who were his enemies. And he had to defend himself from certain charges that were completely untrue. One of these was that Paul was against God's law. Now we're going to begin with this particular passage in which Paul is defending himself before Festus the governor and Agrippa, the local vassal king in Galilee. And then we're going to move into some other areas and God willing, we'll eventually come back to St. Paul again before our study is concluded. If you would, I'd like you to begin with me at verse 13. Now I'm in Acts chapter 26. We're going to read 13 through 28. If you would, I'd like you to be standing in honor of God's law, in honor of the Bible, in honor of God's word. If you'd be standing, please, and join me as we read Acts 26, verses 13 down through 28. And we'll read this responsibly. I'll read 13, you follow with 14, and so on. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Rise, and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by thy faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than that which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Thank you. You may be seated. Paul begins this particular passage by recounting to Festus, the governor, and to Agrippa, the king, his personal conversion story on the road to Damascus. He then describes his own mission and his purpose in life from that point forward. And then we've read here that the two men respond with a measure of incredulity, Festus being unfamiliar completely with the Hebrew worldview and with the Old Testament scriptures and so forth. Festus thought he was simply crazy. And Agrippa, who was more familiar with the Old Testament, said, Paul, almost, you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. You are so persuasive in speaking out of the law and the prophets. Now it turns out that we live in a world in which the law of God is held in very low regard. In general, of course, God himself is held in low regard. Many do not even believe that God exists. The Bible is held in low regard. But even among Christians, even among those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the law of God is held in low regard. Now, for many of us, this is a familiar problem and a frustration. Many of us, though, are not as well prepared as we could be and should be to defend God's law. Now, when I say the law of God, it might behoove me to clarify what I mean. Now, many, when they hear the phrase, the law of God, they might say, well, what you are talking about is the Mosaic commandments, the Mosaic statutes and ordinances and judgments. Now, by that, what is typically meant is there are about 616 or 17, depending how you count them, various statutes, commandments, judgments that were issued in the first five books of the Bible. These are sometimes regarded, really, these, they come really out of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are considered the Mosaic commandments or the Mosaic law, the Mosaic statute. These were given by God to Moses as Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and attempting to establish a nation. But when I use the word law of God, I, seem, I, I, I think it's better to think of it as something a little bit bigger than that which was given to Moses. It's certainly bigger and larger than simply the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are an excellent summary. And in fact, they are a summary that is so good that if that were all we had, we would probably do reasonably well. But we do have more. 
And when I say the law of God, when I hear the phrase the law of God, I think in terms that are bigger and expansive yet, beyond simply Old Testament law and beyond the Mosaic statutes. I think of the law as something that is eternal, everlasting. Now, there might be those who disagree with me, but I think of the law of God as everlasting in this respect. I begin with the thought that God is everlasting. God is unchanging. God's nature and character are unchanging. God's ideas and concepts and everything that he thinks is thus unchanging, perfect, right, and true. That everything he says is perfect, right, true, and thus unchanging. And this, thus all the instructions that he's given for the world and for man, for all of us, are right, true, and unchanging. Now, there are probably those who would really struggle with that. And they hold what you might call a, what sometimes is referred to as a dispensational view of the world and history. And they say, well, God might be unchanging, but the world is not unchanging. And in different times and seasons, God has a different set of priorities and commandments and statutes for man, depending on the seasons of men. I'm not completely comfortable with that. It's true that man changes and we have no constants among us and that over time there are new perspectives that maybe need to be considered. But I think if we press that concept very far, we're going to run into great trouble. And indeed, as well-intended as the dispensational people are, and many of them are, have, I believe, good motives, most of them, perhaps, so I'm not charging anyone motives, they, they tend to run into trouble theologically and biblically, and in this area, they run into trouble as well. So I've got a number of points I'd like to discuss with you this morning, and we'll end up where we began, with St. Paul before Festus and Agrippa. But before we do that, I'd like to kind of survey a little bit about God's law and about God and, and some of the concepts that might be useful to us regarding the law of God and try to, try to make the case that God has an eternal character and out of that character flows an eternal word. And that word is his law and his ideas of right, wrong, truth, justice, and everything that goes with, with those ideas. So let's begin now, and on this outline, I'm probably going to be moving rather rapidly in the first part of it. So for those of you that like to fill in the blanks and follow along, that's great. I may not quote every passage, but there'll be, those passages are there for you to look at. So let's start at the beginning. In my opinion, the law of God existed from the beginning, before the Mosaic statutes. Now I'm going to give you two examples, and we don't have as much as we might like. But I think there's two clear examples that will tell us that prior to Moses, God's law was known to God's people. You'll remember the story of Noah. Now it turns out when the flood was concluded, now this is long before Moses, when the flood was concluded in Genesis chapter 8, one of the first things that Noah did when he got off the ark was that he sacrificed clean animals, built an altar and sacrificed clean animals. Now that tells us something right there. It's pretty clear that Noah must have known, obviously, the difference between clean and unclean animals. He must have known what sacrifices were meant to do. He must have known that this might be pleasing to God. And so he had a real sense of what sacrifices were all about. So the sacrificial system that Moses describes in great detail in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that sacrificial system preceded Moses by many, many hundreds and hundreds of years. Second, I won't read about it, but if you turn to Psalm 81, if you care to, and you read verses 3 through 5, you will discover that there's someone else who knew about something about God's law long before Moses. And that was Joseph. It tells us 
almost in a passing way. But it tells us that when Moses, excuse me, it tells us that when Joseph was taken as a slave to the land of Egypt, as a 17-year-old boy or thereabouts, as he was dragged off, sold by his brothers into slavery into Egypt, he arrived in Egypt not knowing the language, not knowing what his future held, no doubt in great fear and anxiety and, and consternation. But it tells us that he knew about one of the commandments of God. And it turns out it's, it's the new moon. One of the festivals that God describes in Scripture and is described in, in a little bit of detail for us in the Mosaic statutes. Joseph knew all about that several hundred years before Moses. Wow, how could that be? Well, the reason that Moses knew about all of these statutes is because God gave them to him and reintroduced them to him to reintroduce his law to a people that had grown up in a land of darkness. And the Mosaic statutes are really a reintroduction of God's law. They are not the original beginning of God's law. Joseph and Noah knew about them prior. And I believe if we scoured through the early chapters of Genesis, we would find clues that tell us that Abraham and Enoch and maybe many others knew about God's law as well, long before Moses was ever born. Now, as a second point, and before we go very far here, anytime you talk about God's law, there are those people who are uncomfortable and they say, by golly, here you are emphasizing God's law. We should, be, we should be emphasizing God's grace. Well, I don't want to de-emphasize God's grace, and I don't want to imply that your salvation is going to be gained by mere obedience to the law and that alone. So I need to tell you that no one is saved through outward obedience to the law. Yet, yet, willing obedience to the law is a mark of faith and by such faith we are saved not faith in the law but our obedience and our willing obedience to the law shows that our faith is genuine it's one outward demonstration that we mean what we say we mean our actions reflect what we claim we believe without some measure of outward deeds and actions, do we really believe in what we say we believe? Now, on that point, I better read these verses because I don't want anyone who listens to this this morning or any other time to walk away and say, well, uh, that guy, Reed Benson, thinks that you're going to be saved by obeying the law. And, and I want to read for you Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Because I have to get this in here. Now Paul says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the, Paul says very plainly, we're not going to be justified by the deeds of the law. Because Paul has statements in his many writings like this, many people say Paul was against the law. He didn't like God's law. He didn't obey God's law, and he didn't want anybody else to obey God's law. And he thought the whole thing ought to be just sent down the river and gotten rid of and forgotten for good. Well, of course, that is false. And just because Paul says we're not going to gain our salvation through obedience to the law, doesn't mean that the law is a bad idea. Now, if we clarify, and we had time to read a lot of the writings of St. Paul we would discover that's not at all what Paul is saying. In fact, Paul has many things to say that are positive and good about the law. And I'll just give you one quick citation. If you go over just a couple of chapters to Romans 7, Paul says this in verse 22. He said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He delights in the law of God. He doesn't delight in the law of God 
as a means of obtaining salvation, but he nonetheless believes that the law of God is of great value. All right, well, let's go a little further. Now, many presume, many will take an angle that runs a bit like this. They'll say, you know, well, that Old Testament law was, that was pretty good. That Mosaic law that, that, that God gave, the Ten Commandments, those were good. And, and all those other laws like, you know, the festivals and the dietary law and this and that and all the other odds and ends, all those statutes were pretty good. They're pretty good. But, you know, we have something better. And the argument goes like this. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. And from the Holy Spirit, we automatically know right from wrong. See, the Holy Spirit just puts in my brain that which is right and wrong. And I just automatically know what to do when a situation arises because we have the Holy Spirit. And so I don't need God's law. I don't need God's law. I have the Holy Spirit. Now, is that right and proper? Is that correct thinking? And the answer to that is wrong thinking. It is false. And let me just give you two thoughts on that. Number one, for everyone who thinks that God's law and the Mosaic law and all of the laws of Scripture are pretty good, I might remind you in Psalm 19, there's a simple passage. Some of you will know these words, but it says that the law of God is perfect and complete converts the soul. God's law is much better than pretty good. God's law is perfect. Now, in Hebrew, the word perfect means complete. means fully adequate to the task. So, before we get too far down the road in, in saying, well, the law is something we don't really need to pay much attention to, you might reflect on the, that passage in which David said, God's law is perfect, converting the soul. That's in Psalm 19. Second, I need to articulate this clearly. I don't have time for the exploration of it fully. But trust me when I say that the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for knowledge of God's law. The Holy Spirit is not a substitute for knowledge of the Scripture, including God's law. It is the Holy Spirit's task to stimulate in your mind and in your thoughts that which you have put there because you obediently attempted to put it into your brain. You, and I could spend a lot of time on this point, it is your duty to read, to study, to listen, and to meditate on Scripture. Now, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, it says something like this. Study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, you rightly divide the word of truth, Paul says, through study. In Acts chapter 17, Paul commends some people known as the Bereans. And he says they were a noble group of people because they studied the Scripture to see if what they had heard was true. When they heard someone speak and a preacher gave them a message, what did they do? Before they swallowed it, they opened their Bible, and the only Bible they would have had is the Old Testament, and they studied to see whether or not it was true. Now, it is your duty to give the Holy Spirit full opportunity to stimulate in your thinking and in your decision-making right from wrong by first putting into your head God's law. And so, when you are faced with a difficult and cloudy and confusing situation, as we often are, you will have thoughts rattling around in your head in, of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit will help you discern what to do, how to respond. That is your duty. We are not 
empty-headed people. We are not to be empty-headed people and simply say, well, I'll let the Holy Spirit do all of the work. And I have no responsibility in this area. Let's continue a little further. As we reflect on the law, we'll discover that there are some statutes of the law that specifically emphasize their eternal character. The eternal character of the law is specifically emphasized. Let me give you two examples. For those who argue that the law of God is done away with, if we read from Exodus chapter 12, you might recall these important words about the Passover. It tells us in Exodus chapter 12, verse number 14, regarding the Passover celebration, it says, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now, a plain, simple reading tells you, golly, that, that sounds like a forever. <laughs> it just tells us that as long as Israelite exists, they're to keep the Passover. There's another great example in Exodus chapter 31. Let me read for you just a couple of verses from Exodus 31 regarding another law of God, another statute. And this is involving the Sabbath day. So between verses 13 and 17, you'll find some interesting phraseology regarding the Sabbath day. It tells us in verse 13, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep, it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And then if you drop down to verse 16, it says, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant perpetual. My. And then if you missed it, verse 17 says, it's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. So three times in this particular chapter, the Sabbath day is emphasized in a way that shows its eternal character, its eternal nature. Now I believe this could be done for a few of the other statutes and what we might call the Old Testament law as well. Now, when we go to the New Testament, it's quite common for those who raise up criticisms about God's law to go to a couple of passages I'd like to discuss with you briefly. One of them is in Colossians 2.14, and we need to read there. So I really would ask you to open up to Coloss the book of Colossians, and if you haven't been following along much, you ought to turn there. Turn to Colossians 2.14. And if you haven't got this marked in your Bible or any notes in your Bible in the margins, you might consider doing that this morning. I'm going to give you now two common arguments that are falsely used to teach that God's law was abolished in the New Testament. There's many people that argue and insist God's law has been abolished in the New Testament. The Old Testament, that's fine, that's good, that's great, that's fine for them. But now we get to the New Testament and God's law has been abolished. That's it. Scratch, done away with, we don't need it. We'll run with just the Holy Spirit. We've got the Holy Spirit, and I don't mean to diminish the Holy Spirit, but the line of reasoning runs, hey, we don't need the Old Testament law at all in any way. It's been abolished. And Paul says so here in Colossians 2.14. They claim the law of God was nailed to the cross. Nailed to the cross. Perhaps you've heard that. Well, of course, that is false. Let's read Colossians 2.14. It's actually pretty simple when you think about it, in my, at least in my view, correct understanding. But let's read it. It says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, people are going to land on one or two words there that, that confuse them ordinances or handwriting and so forth and so on, say, well, okay, there we go. The law of God was nailed to the cross. That's not what was nailed to the cross, ladies and gentlemen. That was not what was nailed to the cross. If you'll turn with me or let me read for you, Psalm 130, verse 3. We have a, a, a little comment that I think gives us the right concept to understand <laughs> what was nailed to the cross. 
Psalm 130, verse 3, reads like this. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? It's a question that, that answers itself. It's saying, none of us are going to stand up to the scrutiny of God. We're all going to be found guilty and wanting and deficient if God marks iniquities. What does that mean, God marking iniquity? Well, here's what it's saying. If God was to really keep track of our iniquities and make a list, none of us would stand before Him. If God was going to say, All right, Ethan, this morning you're a little sassy towards your dad. That's number, item number one. Iniquity and sin number one. Number two, oh, he didn't take out the trash. Number three, uh, had some questionable thoughts. Number four, drove too fast and reckless, even though his parents had charged him to be cautious and wise in his driving. If God was going to keep a list of all of our sins, if God was going to keep that forever, on the day of judgment, how long would the list be? <laughs> it would be, you know, we'd need, we, you need, need a, 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 you know, I don't know how many gigawatts you'd need for me, but you'd need a lot of memory to be able to print that list out. But that's not... <laughs> you, see, that, you see, going back to Colossians now, what was nailed to the cross is that list. You see, what was nailed to the cross, the, it was the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Here's the list that's against you. That list was nailed to the cross. That list is what Jesus died for. He didn't die for his list. He died for your list and for my list. It was my long list that was nailed on his cross that made his death necessary. That's what was nailed to the cross. So don't get the idea that the law is the problem. The law isn't the problem. It's our disobedience to God's law that's the problem. And Psalm 103, verse 12, tells us that our sins are separated as far from us as the east is from the west. I mean, that's a beautiful thought. That long list now is taken and destroyed. And God's not going to bring it up again. And there's a little lesson for us in our relationships of life. Maybe you shouldn't bring up your list of complaints about someone that's close to you. Once they've been dealt with, they're done for. But let's move on. Now the second argument that is often falsely used to teach that God's law was abolished in the New Testament is found in Romans 10.4. So let's go there. And again, it's the writings of St. Paul. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> in Romans 10.4, Paul wrote this. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, usually, it's interpreted something like this. They say, well, if you're a believer, the death of Jesus ended all use of the law. There it is. Christ is the end of the law. Christ came, he abolished the law. Christ is the end of the law. If you're a believer, that's it. You don't need the law. God's law is a bad idea for you, and you shouldn't be, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be messing with it. Now, this really is, uh, again, a great misunderstanding. And we could focus on several different aspects of this. First of all, you know, if it's just me, the first thought that enters my head, and when you say, well, we've got to get rid of the law, Christ ended the law, that seems completely contrary and contradictory to some of what we just read a few minutes ago about some of the laws that are perpetual, that are supposed to be kept throughout our generations forever. How could Christ end something that is supposed to be perpetual and exist and be kept and obeyed forever? The real misunderstanding is a simple one, and, if, and, it's, and it's the usage of the word end. And really, I think that our forefathers would get this 
better than we do? The use of the word end in the English language has changed a bit. We don't use it the way we used to three or four hundred years ago. But we could go into the, the Greek here. The word end does not mean cessation. In Greek, it's the word telos. But end does not mean cessation, as in, as in the idea is, okay, this is, you know, I've come to the end of my work day, so I will stop working. That is not what the word end or telos means in this passage. It means the goal or the final purpose. The goal or the final purpose. We do still have an expression that is sometimes used in our conversations. We sometimes say, well, it was a means to an end. I just did it as a means to an end. The end being a purpose or a goal. Well, that's the proper use here. Now, there's a biblical example of this. The same word telos is found in 1 Peter 1, 9, chapter 1, verse 9. So let me read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. It goes like this. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Well, do you suppose that Peter was talking about the stopping of your faith? The now we go to a point where we have a non-existence of our faith? No. The end of our faith is the goal of our faith. The purpose of our faith. So in Romans chapter 10, in verse 4, when it says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them that believe, is telling us that Christ, the law, the goal of the law, is to force us to Christ to gain righteousness. The goal, the purpose of the law, is to force us to go to Christ. The purpose of the law, at least one of the purposes of the law, a prime purpose in terms of salvation of our souls, is to show us that we must go to Christ. And the purpose of the law, the end of the law, the goal of the law is to show us that we're sinners. To demonstrate that you've got a long list against you. And something's going to have to be done about that list. So Romans 10.4 does not abolish, get rid of, or abrogate the law. And Paul did not mean it to. Now... As we go to the other side of our outline and kind of continue and move into this next section here, I need to take a couple of minutes and talk about the law of blood sacrifice. Now, many of you are aware that, that the Old Testament is filled with sacrifices of animals. And many people will say something like this. Well, they say, well, I know for sure that the law of blood sacrifice was abolished. God abolished the law of blood sacrifice. It is not a valid principle anymore. It is an invalid thing. It is a bad thing. It is a, it is, blood sacrifice now is a terrible thing. We don't want to have anything to do with the law of blood sacrifice. And that actually is not true at all. In fact, the opposite is really true. But let me clarify and explain. What did Christ do? Christ did not abolish the law of blood sacrifice. He made it permanently effective. Now this might seem like a fine point of distinction, and it, I guess in one respect it may be, but it's an important point. It's an, but it's, it's an extremely important concept to get right in your mind regarding the topic of God's law. Christ did not abolish the law of blood sacrifice. You are still saved. You are saved by the law of blood sacrifice. You, now, right now, you, if the law of blood sacrifice was not available for you, you would not inherit eternal life. It is the law of blood sacrifice of Christ that saves your soul. If there was no law of blood sacrifice today, right now, at this moment, if that was an invalid concept, an invalid point of theology, you would have no hope of salvation. Because your list of sins would still be held right against you. It is the law of blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ that saves you. You say, well, you're kind of mincing words. Well, we're really not mincing words. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. 
he talks about Christ making the law of blood sacrifice permanently effective. Now, there's a lot in the book of Hebrews in this area. We don't have time to go into it in extreme detail, but it's not really necessary. Before we recite a couple of verses here in Hebrews, and we're going to read chapter 10, verse 4. Well, no, let's, let's go ahead and do that right now. Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read for you verse number 4 as an interesting point. Hebrews 10, 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Well, what's that mean? It means, it means that back in the days when Abraham or David or Noah were offering bloody sacrifices, those sacrifices didn't save their soul. That didn't save them either. You say, well, I'm, I'm confused. Well, what did save them? If the law of blood sacrifice of those goats and bulls and, and sheep and so forth didn't save their souls. What did? It's the same thing that saves your soul. It's the blood of Christ. Now, let me go a little further on this. Hebrews 4, excuse me, Hebrews 10, verse 10 now. We read verse 4. Verse 10, it says, same chapter. You might want to look at this closely, Hebrews 10, 10. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all, the body of Jesus Christ was offered for sacrifice. Let me say this about the Old Testament sacrifices. These Old Testament sacrifices were really formal acts of obedience. They were acts of faith that foreshadowed two different things. The people that were offering those sacrifices in the Old Testament were looking forward to something. They were looking forward to a prophesied perfect priesthood, and they were looking forward to a prophesied perfect sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices had two or three major problems. One... There's no such thing in the Old Testament as a perfect lamb or goat or bull. And two, there is no such thing as a perfect priest who is qualified to offer such a sacrifice. So what, were the, what was the point of doing any of that? Well, the point of it was that they were acts of obedience. They were formal acts of obedience that reflected their own faith as they looked ahead to a prophesied perfect sacrifice to come. Now, they didn't know what we know, but they did have the promise. They had the promise of a perfect sacrifice and a perfect redeemer. And they looked forward in faith that God was going to send that, that perfect sacrifice at some point that would save their soul. Now, that took a lot of faith on their part. It's a lot easier for us because, you see, we look backward in time. And we know from the historic fact of the matter that Jesus did come. And made that perfect sacrifice. For us, it's less faith required in many respects. But they were saved by faith, just like you and I are saved by faith. But that faith is activated and made real by obedience. And if there's never any attempt, if there's never any heart in you that says, I want to obey, well, what kind of faith is that? It's no faith at all. Well, time is moving along quickly, so I'll let you read Hebrews 7. No, no, I'll tell you what, I really better read this. I better get this in there quickly. Hebrews 7, verse 11, talks about, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of the Melchizedek, and be not after the order of Aaron? He's just pointing out that the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, was imperfect. And thus, the sacrifices they offered weren't good enough. Didn't do the job. And we could read further. And the prophesied perfect sacrifice, we can find that in, back in verse 10 again. Let me read for you verse 12 and then verse 14. 
This man, I'm in Hebrews 10, 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, that's Jesus, sat down the right hand of God. And then it says in verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's interesting. Now, let me touch real quickly on another point. And this is the future. If God's law is eternal and it exists since the beginning, does that mean it's going to carry on and exist all the way to the end? Or at least the end of uh, anything that we would understand? And the answer is, I believe so. <coughs> now, if we think about after the return of Christ, there's a period in time that is often referred to as the millennial kingdom of Christ. A thousand years of, of, of perfect rule of Jesus Christ here in this world. Now, I believe that the law of God will exist in the millennial kingdom. It will exist. When Jesus returns, the law of God will still be in effect. Oddly enough, I believe there's enough information from the scriptures to tell us that bloody sacrifices will be made in that millennial kingdom. Now, this is a bit of a confusing thing, and this is a bit of a difficult thing theologically and conceptually. But I believe that the words of Scripture are plain enough. Now, I won't read all of the passages that you'll see on your outline. If we read in Ezekiel chapter 43, we would find that there is very detailed descriptions of what appears to be a temple and a priesthood and bloody sacrifices being offered. Now, there are some who say, well, that temple of Ezekiel is not really relevant. And they have their reasons why they would say so. But even if we didn't have the millennial temple in Ezekiel, we still have other passages among the prophets that speak of this perfect time in the future after Christ returns and after he sets up a beautiful and glorious kingdom here in this earth that there will be sacrifices. So I perhaps should read a verse or two for you on that. So, for example, Isaiah 56 and verse 7 reads like this. In fact, you might recognize this. Isaiah 56, verse 7. It says, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. That's in the future, it's unfulfilled prophecy. You might recognize these words in Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, beginning at verse 16. It says, In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, The Lord our righteousness. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. Or perhaps you could look at this passage in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 14, which is a description of some of the events of the end. Zechariah chapter 14, beginning of verse 20, the end of the book of Zechariah says this. In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and Jerusalem, Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. Now those pots are not, it's not chamber pots. Those are the pots that the sacrifices, the, the bloody sacrifices were held in. But at the end you can perceive that. It says, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them. And see therein. And in that day there should be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. <laughs> well, there are a few other passages we could look at. But oddly enough, God's law is so complete and so perfect and so good. And I can't really explain this fully. But evidently, in the future, there will be these sacrifices. Because the idea of sacrifice in the Old Testament wasn't a bad idea. It wasn't as though God said when Jesus came and 
gave us a perfect sacrifice. It wasn't as if God said, oh, I've decided that those Old Testament sacrifices were a terrible idea after all. Turns out, they're not a terrible idea. And while it's difficult to understand why, fully, we will see them again. Now, in our current broken world, we've been given sacraments as our formal acts of obedience to show our faith. We have sacraments. We don't have a temple. We don't have a priesthood. We don't have an altar. We don't have sacrifices. We don't have anything. We are in a mess. And Christ instituted the sacraments as our acts of obedience that we are called to perform to demonstrate our faith. Sacraments are important. They're an outward demonstration of the real faith that you have. So when you say, well, the sacraments are pretty good, but I don't know if I really need them all that badly, I would just suggest you reflect on their value as a, as a mark of your obedience and a demonstration of your faith. Now let's return to Paul. With the time that we have left, we began with Paul before Festus and Agrippa. So let's finish up our discussion on St. Paul and the idea that Paul did away with God's law. It was Paul's teachings and Paul's ideas that got rid of the law of God. Because that's what you're going to hear. That's what the, the way the argument goes. You'll notice that most of the words in the New Testament we've been re reading are the words of St. Paul. We've been in Colossians. We've been in Hebrews. We've, Paul is the writer of all, pretty much most of these ideas. And Paul is greatly misunderstood. But let's take a snapshot of Paul's life. All right? So let me take you to the last five years of Paul's life. Here's how it goes. Are you ready? The last five years of Paul's life run something like this. Paul says to himself, I would like to go to Jerusalem and attend the festival there. And so he arrives in Jerusalem and he discovers that there are some people that are very happy to see him. These are believers in Jesus Christ as Savior and Messiah. But there are many others in Jerusalem that are not happy to see St. Paul. They believe that Paul is a great destroyer of the Old Testament faith. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests in Jerusalem, all of the power structure in Jerusalem was primarily still against St. Paul. It was against St. Paul in many respects the way it was against Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, it was the high priesthood. It was the corrupt priests in Jerusalem who said, crucify him, crucify him, let's get rid of this guy. Same situation. Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and while there are many believers, the entire power structure of the city says, get rid of Paul, kill him, get rid of him, get rid of Paul. And so, the first thing he does when he arrives in Jerusalem, his friends tell him, there are people after you. There's a way you might be able to nip, their, nip this in the bud. You might be able to evade their bitterness and anger toward you. And they say, if you would just make a demonstration, a public demonstration, that you are a law keeper, that you, you, you think God's law is a good idea, if you do something publicly that will demonstrate that you think God's law is a good idea, that will eliminate their hatred and, and, and you can survive in this city. And we can avoid a crisis. So you know what Paul does? He takes their advice. Let's read about that. Here's their advice. It, it's based on a relatively small statute in the Mosaic Commandments. But if you turn to Acts chapter 21, we can read about this. So I encourage you now as we enter this final phase and we look at the life of Paul, that you turn to Acts chapter 21. It turns out that Paul, in an effort to avoid an offense, submits to a purification ritual. A purification ritual based out of the book of Numbers chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Now Paul didn't need to go through this purification ritual. He didn't need to. He wasn't impure. He hadn't touched a dead body. He hadn't done anything. But Paul went through this purification ritual in an effort to show that he wasn't against the law to blunt the criticism against him. 
So let's read about this. I'll start in verse 21 of Acts 21. And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the custom. Now that's a false claim. The people who are telling us that in verse 21 are saying, this is what those people think about you. Now we know it's not true, but this is what they say about you, Paul, that you're against circumcision and you're against the law. And then they point out in verse 22, What is it therefore? The multitude must come together, for they'll hear that thou art come. You're a public figure, Paul. People are going to see you and watch what you do. So we've got we to come up with a plan to deal with this criticism. Verse 23, Do thou therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them, and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things, whereof they were informed concerning thee, are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. So to show that you're a law keeper, even though you really don't need to do this purification ritual, go with these four guys and do it, and do it publicly, and then they'll know that you're really not against God's law. And that'll blunt their criticism when we will avoid a public crisis. That's the strategy. So let's drop down to verse 26. What did Paul do? Now, by the way, what was the, what was the ritual? The ritual amounted to this. You shave your head, you wait seven days, and then you offer a sacrifice. That was the ritual. Shave your head, wait seven days, offer a sacrifice. Okay, not, it's not, you know, real big, big deal, real hard. So here's what Paul does, verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered in the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So he shaves his head, he goes to the temple, lets people see him. He's waiting for the seven days to elapse so that he can offer a sacrifice does it work? And the answer is no. <laughs> it's an attempt to appease his critics, but it doesn't work. If we go on, it says, And then when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. And they dragged him out. If we keep reading, they dragged him out in public and were getting ready to stone him. And Paul's about to be killed by the leadership of the people of the city and the temple. Because they're convinced he's against the law. Despite the fact that he tried to appease them by going through this purification ritual, which he really didn't need to do, but he said, well, I'll just do it anyway. All right, what happens next? Well, we won't read about it. But you know what? He's saved by the Romans. The Roman soldiers come in to check out the whole commotion, and they arrest Paul. And they drag him away and save his life, literally. So now he's in the custody of the Romans. So what happens to Paul next? Well, we're going to have to move quickly. So Paul gets taken by the Romans. And the centurion that has authority over him, he says to himself, if we keep reading in the following chapters, he says, gee, I don't really know what to do with this guy. He says, it seems to me he hasn't done anything wrong, and I really don't understand why everybody, so many people in the city are against him. I don't understand why they want to stone him and kill him. He says, this is confusing. I just don't understand these Judean people and all their religion and politics. So he says, Paul, we're going to get you out of the city of Jerusalem, and I'm going to send you to the provincial capital at Caesarea. So he does that. In the middle of the night... So that the people of the city don't know what's happening to Paul. They drag him out of the dungeon. Send him under an armed guard out of the city of Jerusalem. And off to Caesarea to the Roman governor. And there the Roman governor at Caesarea can deal with this political hot potato. Alright, so that takes us to Felix. So real quick, let's go and see what happens when Paul appears before Felix. Acts chapter 24. Now I've already showed you that Paul affirmed the law in Acts 21. If he was against the law, he wouldn't have attempted that purification ritual. But he wasn't against the law. 
Well, let's see what we find when he appears before Felix in Acts chapter 24. Now, who is Felix? Felix is the Roman governor at the time. Let's read verses 11 through 14. And there's a, so he has a hearing now. Felix, here's what Paul has to say. His, Paul's accusers are there. Paul has a chance to speak to Felix, the Roman governor. And there's a little trial, a short a hearing. So here's what happens. Verse 11. Paul says this. Because thou, thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. That was only 12 days ago that he'd been arrested. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way, that's what Jesus, the belief in Jesus was called, after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing, look at verse 14, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Does Paul still believe in the law and the prophets? Yes, he just said so. He believed in the law and the prophets. That's the second affirmation that Paul makes near the end of his life, that he believes in the law. Let's go to the third one. The third one is the next gentleman. It turns out that Felix doesn't know what to do with Paul. He has the same problem as the Roman centurion. Felix is the Roman governor. He scratches his head and he says, Gee, it seems like, Paul, you haven't done anything wrong, but all these people are so very angry with you. I can't just let you go. You're going to cause a commotion. So he says, I'll just put you back in the prison. And we'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll not worry about it. So he, Felix puts him back in jail. And Paul sits there, and Felix says, I'll let the next Roman governor deal with this guy. So Paul sits there for two years, waiting for the next Roman governor to show up, which is Festus. So Felix goes on home, Festus, the next Roman governor, comes, and Paul has his first appearing before Festus. So Festus, the Roman governor, now hears him in Acts chapter 25. What does Paul say? To Festus, when Festus now has to deal with Paul, remember Paul's adversaries are very patient and they're still out there. The political situation hasn't changed. The religious situation hasn't changed. The enemies of Paul still want to see him destroyed and murdered and killed, just like they had 30 years before killed Jesus. So what does he say to Festus? Let's break into chapter 25, verse 4. But Festus answered, that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself would shortly depart thither. Let them therefore, said he, which be among you, are able, go down with me and accuse this man, if there be any wickedness in him. And when they had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting in the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. So here Paul's before Festus. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about. And laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, and here's his answer. Verse 8, look at it. Neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. Before the second Roman governor, Festus, Paul states he is not against the law of the Jews. Now that means the Judeans, the Hebrews. The Old Testament law. That's our third affirmation, that Paul's not against the law. And then finally, it takes us back to where we started. Turns out that Festus, in the end, doesn't know what to do with Jesus. So Festus now says to himself, I've got an idea. I'll just leave Paul in prison until our visiting local king comes to see me. And this takes us to Agrippa. Agrippa comes, as he does a couple of times a year, to visit Festus. And the Roman governor and the Roman vassal king of Judea chat with each other. The difference between Festus and Agrippa is that Agrippa actually knew, because he'd been born and raised in Judea, he knew about the religion of the land. He had a better understanding of the background. 
And that's why Festus wanted Agrippa to help him with what to do with Paul. Because again, he had a sense that Paul was innocent, yet he couldn't really let him go for various political and religious reasons. And so that takes us now to where we were. And let's break into what we've already read. Verse 19 of chapter 26, and we'll close with this. Paul says now, after describing his conversion, telling his story to Festus and Agrippa, he says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the vision, <coughs> but showed first unto them, and of Damascus, and at Jerusalem, and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and do the works meet for repentance. <coughs> now we're getting close, pay attention. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Now pay attention. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying, None other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. Paul now testifies that he believes in the writings of Moses. So for the fourth time since he was arrested, Paul has affirmed the writings of Moses in the Old Testament law. Now, for those who continuously argue that Paul is against the law, and it was Paul's idea to get rid of the law, it was Paul's idea to chuck everything about those Old Testament laws, they just don't know Paul very well. They just haven't read the New Testament scripture well enough. And they haven't studied the Bible to show themselves approved. There's a final thought now. I just want to re-emphasize and leave you with this idea that God's law will always be with us. I don't understand everything about God's law. I don't understand how this can all be, yet I do know what the Scripture says. And I'm confident in what I've tried to explain to you this morning, that God's law is eternal. It's an eternal law, and it will always be with us. It has always been and we are accountable for it. And although we're not saved by our obedience to the law in any outward forms, yet our own willingness, our own willingness to do our best to obey God's law is a demonstration of our faith in Christ and our confidence that Christ's salvation will save our souls. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your time and your patience. God bless you.